What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello everyone, Lindsay here. I'll be your host for today's episode of Burn It All Down. But before we get started, I wanted to take a second to remind you all about our Patreon campaign. The Patreon campaign is the way we fund this show. Because we do this independently and don't have big money sponsors, we rely on our listeners to help make this show work every single week. If you go to patreon.com slash burn it all down, you can pledge monthly donations, as little as say $2 a month, whatever works for you. And those donations give you special access to Patreon only content. This week, you might particularly love that because you might be not getting enough World Cup takes in your life. And we have a World Cup podcast episode just for our Patreon listeners and a World Cup cup newsletter. Both of those things will help you relive the entire group stages of the World Cup and get you some special insight going into these knockout stages, which by the time you're listening to this are well underway. So we just want to thank you all for all of your support. And uh, here's this week's episode. Okay, everyone, welcome. As I said, I'm Lindsay Gibbs, sports reporter at Think Progress. Joining me today is Amira Rose Davis, assistant professor at Penn State, and Brenda Elsie, the associate professor of history at Hofstra. It is always a scary day for me when it is just me and the professors. So yeah, this week, we're going to talk about the ways that pro and college sports leagues continue to fail when it comes to dealing with allegations of sexual assault. Then we're going to recap the highs and lows of the Pride Month in the sports world. And then we have a special interview where Brenda interviewed Jessica Lopez, who is Brenda, the writer in for ESPN Deportes. Is that correct? Um, she used to be. She worked for many years on the Mexican team. Now she is the head of PR at Minnesota United in MLS. Oh, perfect. I should have... Uh, Cop ask you that before the intro, but we'll just keep it in. Uh, so yeah, so they're going to be talking a lot about Team Mexico, which we have all fallen in love with. So look, before we get going, we usually start at the top of our show with uh, some lighthearted talk. But honestly, this week, I'm having trouble with anything lighthearted. It's just want to take a second to acknowledge that it's been a really, really tough week for I think all of us. I know for me, the double whammy of the Justice Kennedy's retirement on the Supreme Court, and then the day later, the shooting at the newsroom in Annapolis at the Capitol Gazette, which was just about 30, 40 minutes from my office where I work in a newsroom in downtown D.C. It was a lot. So, Brenda, Amira, how are how are you both doing? And uh, yeah, how, how, how are we getting through this time? Brenda? <laughs> Usually I, I go into some sort of escapism during the World Cup, but I, I'm not I'm doing terribly. Um, yeah. <laughs> communi- right. yeah. Communing with nature, I would say it's summer. So I do find myself like I have a lot of where I live. There's a lot of things to pick and garden. Like I have a lot of blueberry bushes. So I find myself just sort of zenning out and picking blueberries like that's the maximum bandwidth that I have. But yeah. Oh, but that's lovely. It is. It is. So like nature, I guess, something like that is the best I can do. All right. Amira, how about you? How are you hanging in there? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely been a tough week and the usual kind of escapisms or distractions, whether it's sports or kids or Netflix, doesn't really seem to be doing the trick. And I think that uh, it was just a week that I kind of took easy and I leaned into some of my kind of brilliant folks around me and used the kind of fuel of relationships and love to fuel the flames of activism. And I think that that's something that's 
really helpful in times like these to look side by side and realize who, who, who will be in the street with you, who will take to the street and use that love to fuel a revolution. So that's kind of where I am, uh, which is somewhere between being absolutely mortified and angry and every day feeling like there's a new whammy, but also existing every day and knowing that this struggle has been it's part and parcel of a fight that has existed before me and will exist after me. And, and, um, that's what, that's about where I am. Those are inspiring words. Thank you. I've been struggling to come up with any inspiring words this it's week. It's better than so blueberries. Like, <laughs> you know what though? Blueberries are pretty great too. So it's better than my thing, which has just been uh, occasionally just laying in my bed and staring up into space and being like, Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> Um, well, anyways, I'm excited to get into today's episode where I'm, I can't say it's going to get much more uplifting, but I'm excited for it nonetheless. And there is one thing I can promise you, we are not going to be talking about LeBron James's free agency here, because the only thing we care about is that he's happy and that he doesn't go to Boston. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> So this week we had a return of kind of an evergreen topic in sports, which is how leagues handle violence against women, especially allegations of sexual assault. And so far, it seems that it's just not getting any better. (laughs) This week, the NFL suspended uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers quarterback Jameis Winston for three games, three games, despite the fact that they agreed their investigation agreed that the account of an uber driver who said that james reached over and touched her crotch while in the middle of an uber ride which is sexual assault so sexual assault equals three games Uh, this suspension seemed to be negotiated between the nfl and james winston so that he would not appeal the suspension so they wouldn't have to go through an ugly legal battle like they did with the Ezekiel Elliott case, domestic violence case last year, but also so that details of what happened would not be revealed to protect Jameis Winston in that way. Also, some news out of Baylor this week where the former athletic director, Ian McCall, came out and talked about how this was a systemic issue at Baylor. It wasn't just in the football program. And he felt that many people in the football program were used as an escape because they were black men. Now, he didn't say that the football program didn't have a problem, (laughs) which I think is important to note. But he did say that the that in his opinion and from his time there he felt that Baylor decided to focus and scapegoat the football program because of the fact that there were black men involved in these allegations and um you know would get the rest of the university off and you could centralize the problem there we had Jerry Richardson who's a former owner of my beloved Carolina Panthers who the results of his sexual harassment investigation came out. This investigation essentially pushed him out of the ownership and forced him to sell a few years earlier than he would like to. He's selling the the team for over $2 billion, but was fined $2.75 million from the NFL. And once again, no details of that investigation were released And then we have the fact that uh, the MLB, folks in the MLB are still trying for this Luke Heimlich uh, redemption tour. (laughs) There's just a whole lot to digest. And let's just dive right into it. Amira, can I start with you? Let's start with you and Jameis Winston. (laughs) What are your thoughts on the NFL's decision here? Yeah, I think that it's just so telling that they sealed the details. Right. Which makes you immediately like all your hair stand up and you're kind of like, all right, then <laughs> it was, it's it's not a good look. There's nothing about it that's a good look. And the fact that he was with Banks from Vanderbilt, like the whole situation is so murky and disgusting. And the NFL has shown time and time again that the way that it mets out discipline is really done with an eye towards public perception and not necessarily based on what's going on. So I'm thinking here, for instance, 
of the Ray Rice punishment that only changed after the video was public, despite they always, the fact that they always had those facts or the kind of swiftness in which they came down on Ezekiel Elliott for, with a six game suspension based on being able to kind of deal with public perception in that way and just like come very strong because they thought that that would kind of shore up and look good for a league that struggles with domestic abuse. And, and I think one of the things that we see in this case is sealing the contents of the letter so that we don't know what they are evaluating makes it all very, very kind of sketchy to me because I think that this is a way of brand protection. The fact that you have a player with a known history than having, uh, you know, another incident. And I feel like this is not going to be the end of it. Things don't say sealed anymore. So I wouldn't be surprised if in six months, the contents of the letter are revealed or we know the full extent of what happened. And all of a sudden, you know, we realize that the NFL was handing down a punishment that didn't either that didn't work didn't fit what happened which I don't think is the case I think it's much more likely to be the fact that you know they could have done four games or six games or some something else and so we have no way for a highly public case to really see what's going on but I don't trust the NFL or Goodell one bit yeah and I think that's the hard thing I mean of course They made some sketchy decisions in the Ezekiel Elliott case. I went through all of the information that became public during their, during those court battles, which, you know, that was such a fun fall that I had last year. And I, you know, there was a lot of reasons to be disturbed by Ezekiel Elliott's behavior. And I believe that there were reasons for the NFL suspension. However, the way that they handled things was so sketchy. It made it seem like they were always trying to cover something up. And so there's no reason to completely trust them. The same time you look at this, I mean, this Jameis Winston, you know, the Ezekiel Elliott case was looking at, you know, six or so incidents of domestic violence over, you know, a week long period. Whereas this was, you know, one night it was focused in, it was, you know, one essentially action that we're talking about and that the NFL's letter and Jameis Winston did not deny said happen. So it just seems pretty clear cut. Brenda? Yeah, I it was sort of striking this week the comparisons of suspensions given the actions of different players, like a lot of journalists were reporting you included Lindsay for Think Progress, uh, about comparing the Winston games with other things. Like what was the the marijuana one was sixteen games? Yeah, a full season for marijuana. Yeah. <laughs> Or like Julian Edelman right now, like they don't even know what substance they're, they suspended him for games for. And he has that on appeal. And it's like, that's, that you don't even know what you're doing. And that's, that's a game more than this. Yeah. It's just, it's a mess. It's just so gross. But, you know, we, we could, I could talk about the Jameis Winston thing. The thing I wrote in Think Progress this week was that honestly, it's an insult to sexual assault survivors. And I'm having a really hard time, honestly, dealing with this. And perhaps it's the fact that there's kind of no equivocation here. You know, Jameis Winston is no longer denying the fact that, you know, he did this. The NFL, there's no he might have. It seems like everyone is saying he definitely sexually assaulted this woman and we are giving him three games. <laughs> and the clear cutness of that is, I think, what is is really hard to stomach. Let's quickly let, let's talk about Luke Heimlich. What do we think about the fact that I believe it's the the general manager, manager of the Kansas City baseball team, the Royals, who seems really determined that that Luke Heimlich gets this redemption story. Amira. Yeah, it's just all such a shitty thing. Like, I feel like people are really kind of digging their heels in. I mean, we see this all the time, but I think there's a particular way that that this, this case has been, there's, there's a lot of people very invested in redeeming Luke Heimlich. And I don't know if it's a function of, I I don't know that it's 
different than other kind of redemption tours. I don't know if it's because his actions happened when he was younger and a lot of people are trying to write it off as that. I don't know. You know, it certainly helps to win, to win generally and win, uh, win the championship is certainly helping. And so I think that uh, it's just a particular investment and it, it, it reminds me of, you know, what happens when people very easily want to make themselves feel better by cheering for somebody with a questionable past. And, you know, we talked about on this show about redemption and and one of the things that we noted that just made this point that I thought was particularly right. salient about what it means to sit there and have people cheering. So I think that the way that people really are invested in redeeming him is a kind of amplified rhetorical cheering. And that's kind of why it rubs me the wrong way. But, but it also doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Brenda? Yeah, I mean, the, we talked a, a while about the Heimlich case, and he was 15 at the time. And we wouldn't know about this if he hadn't made like a mistake in reporting to the, you know, for because he's on probation or whatever. I don't know what you call it when you have to check in all the time, but you were a minor when you did it. But whatever that is, we wouldn't even know about this case, really, unless the, the mom wanted to go to the press. And so it's one of those, it's a super complicated case. And I'm, it, but what's not complicated is why would you want to, uh, forgive the metaphor, why would you want to go to bat for this person? Why would you, why would you be like, oh, I know what I'll do. <laughs> I'll make sure to drag this up for the victim and their family over and over again and spin it in a positive way somehow or a, re a, a redemptive way. So it seems to me like there's two kinds of issues. One is the case itself, which is super complicated. And then, and then the other one is, is the decision of this Kansas City royal manager to like keep this in the news and to be his, his kind of advocate. Yeah. Why? It, it, it's it's mind-boggling. It's absolutely mind-boggling. Let's talk about this Baylor report. Uh, Amira, did you did you read anything about this, uh, what was going on at Baylor and Ian McCall's <laughs> comments about this football program being used as essentially a scapegoat? Yeah, I, I was like, water is wet. Like, that's kind of yeah, what right. the <laughs> report said to me. Yeah, you know, and I think that actually our, our very own Jess Luther makes this point really strongly in her book on sportsmanlike conduct, which everybody should go read. But this idea that it's very easy to use black athletes, especially black male athletes at these predominantly white institutions to be the scapegoat for all sexual assault problems. Use that as a way that not only one puts, which, you know, not to say that that's not a, a place where we can certainly say, hey, especially at Baylor, like there's a lot of terribleness happening with that. But there's a way that that's used to act like that's the only space in which this is happening. And therefore, like, let's not worry about other campus assaults or let's not worry about the kind of rampant culture in Baylor that might be um really toxic and problematic. And I think it's very similar to me the way that uh, in, in the NFL, for instance, the issue of, say, domestic violence, that's something that's really amplified. And so it has created this kind of way in which we talk about domestic violence in the NFL as if it's a uniquely NFL problem in terms of and if black NFL players in particular being more prone to domestic violence, when we know that that's just not the case. Now, the way they bungle discipline for it, all of this is worthy of our condemnation and our attention. But we can't slip into this idea that black male athletes are more inherently violent or dom domestic abusers or sexual uh, assaulters because we know that there's all of these people in fortune 500s we know that there's lawyers we know there's doctors we know that this stretches across all of society and the idea that we can talk about these things with black male athletes and then like use that as a shield to to like put up a 
uh, what do you call like a window dressing on the fact that there's much more deep seated rampant problems. I think that this just kind of reminded me of that. Yeah, completely agree. I mean, you know, we're sitting here talking about, you know, Jameis Winston, a black athlete today, and, you know, Luke Heimlich, a white athlete, you know, a white male. And the way that, I mean, look, Jameis Winston has benefited from tons of privilege based on the systems that he's existed within, you know, and we all can agree. And this is the point that I, I also think that Jess makes so well in her book, which is that, you know, these systems are what is propping up these black male athletes. It's not it has nothing to do with them as individuals. It's all about protecting the systems, which are still run and profiting white men who are in power. So yeah. there's just so much here. Um, Brenda? Talking about white male systems, an actor in all of this this week that doesn't get enough attention, I think, are the PR firms. Oh. GF Bunting? is the one that got mentioned in the Baylor one, which is a well-known. And one of the things that's – it is just – I don't want to say the F word, but it's fucking amazing that you have a PR firm that literally says on its website it specializes in Title IX. And by specializing, it means we specialize in making universities look like they actually institute Title IX. (laughs) it's It's amazing to me. That they're allowed to do that. And they came up in the Baylor case and they've been hired, you know, up and down. And they use people from the media to quell stories, to incite stories, to make these redemption cases possible. They do the work for journalists that then pick it up, not good journalists, but that pick it up like the New York Post. And and they they sort of harass journalists that are good and want to do investigative stuff. So anyway, I just want to say one of the the ways in which all of this gets spun for us, it's not only that our own kind of like racist and sexist assumptions come into play as consumers of this media, but it's also that we're being fed it right in this way by people who are super professionals at this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who know how to hit all of the buttons. And I mean, honestly, that takes us back to Jerry Richardson, in my opinion. I mean, I I honestly haven't fully processed this. I mean, I've never been a Jerry Richardson fan, even though I'm a lifelong or, you know, they the, the Carolina Panthers were born when I was in, you know, like nine years old and I've been going to the games ever since. And so, you know, um, for their whole life, I've been a, a super fan, but I've never loved Jerry Richardson and always known that he was a racist asshole. But <laughs> at the same time, I mean, these allegations that came out against him in Sports Illustrated were incredibly disturbing. I mean, he would, you know, the way he would make women give him feet massages, like, professional women at the office, the way he weaponized non-disclosure agreements, which hopefully this will become outlawed within the NFL. That's one big thing that could um, actually be a good thing to come out of this is the, you know, making these type of non-disclosure agreements, you know, against the rules. And, uh, you know, I mean, he would feel up women, you know, in this weird old man way of, you know, oh, I'm just kidding. And, you know, it's just, I don't know, it's sickening. And he's hes the leader of the team. Like, he he was the guy. And I just, I, I honestly, I still haven't completely processed it. And it seems like he's getting away completely scot-free. Uh, Amira, I know you had some thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, I think it ties directly into what we were talking about and what, to, what Brenda just brought up about PR. And the way that, you know, again, this is shrouded in in PR speak and lack of details. I think that's really interesting to note, for instance, that the league-funded investigation was not even an investigation into a full investigation of an accounting of what happened under Jerry Richardson. Rather, it was seeking to confirm the details of the allegations made in the SI piece and otherwise, and and ended up literally being a report that said it substantiated the claims and identified no information that would either discredit the claims and then left it at that. And so what we're left with is this very PR term of workplace misconduct, right? Which covers up, 
that not only the kind of sexual assault allegations, but the litany of racist comments that he made, it has left his victims to basically in, in survivors of, of this uh, improper conduct to find, to speak out, to, you know, weigh violating their non-disclosure with, you know, being really forthcoming with like, what exactly happened in order to give us the full breadth of it. This is not workplace misconduct. This is not like a simple improper conduct of, you know, not having good workplace manners or not refilling the coffee or whatnot. No, this is somebody who has a history of businesses that have been sued for discrimination, racial discrimination, that have had a history with this. This is somebody who for years is accused of making sexist, grotesque sexist comments, racist comments, and we should label it as such. And the fact that we don't is this PR spin. And I think that that's really important to note that it falls in line with this idea that we can't like the worst thing you can call somebody is a racist so you use things like racially charged or improper workplace conduct and still instead of saying no we found that he is racist as shit and he's a misogynist and this is what this is what the deal is and it kind of softens it and so i think that it's really part and parcel of everything else we were talking about there's a way in which this was barely a blip on the radar You know, if you were just looking at this coming across your Twitter timeline or scrolling across the bottom, uh, you know, it would say Jerry Richardson signed $2.75 million, whatever it was, for improper workplace conduct. And that's it. That's all you hear. And yet we're wall to wall on something like Jameis Winston and where we still don't know, you know, the NFL has kind of shrouded it, but yet it's, it's something that is wall to wall coverage. So you can see how people walk away being like, oh, the NFL's biggest issue is these black athletes who are, um, you know, pathologically inclined to these actions despite and then not being able to see the systemic uh, abuses of white owners it reminds me of Jim Mersey and how quickly we like all forgot about like how much drugs he was carrying in his car for instance and so I think it's all wrapped up together and it's just something I think Brenda you hit the nail on the head when you talk about PR spin which is such a necessary part of this conversation and I just you know He's a racist. Say he's a racist. He's a racist. Okay, moving on. Uh, Pride Month in sports has just wrapped up and it ended with some uh, pretty big few fronts, both positive and negative. Amira, do you want to get us started? Yeah, wrapping up Pride Month, I want to start with and acknowledge uh, Colin Martin, who Woo-hoo. plays, who's an MLS player. I now exciting who plays major league soccer for Minnesota United, which didn't you just say Brenda is Jessica Lopez's team. Yeah. Yeah. Look at the connection. (laughs) (laughs) So so Colin Martin announced uh, just a few days ago on pride night that he wanted to formally come out becoming the second openly gay player in the MLS and currently I believe like the only openly gay US male professional athlete and active professional athlete and he uh put out a statement right before the game uh where Minnesota United was hosting their Pride Night, saying, Tonight, my team, Minnesota United, is having their Pride Night. It's an important night for me. I'll be announcing for the first time publicly that I'm an openly gay player in Major League League Soccer. And he goes on to say that he's been out for many years, including to his friends, families, and teammates. He's played in the MLS for six seasons. And he's only received kindness and acceptance from everywhere in MLS uh, and how that has made the decision to come out 
publicly much easier. And he he ends with this. He says, as we celebrate Pride Night, I want to thank my teammates for their unconditional support for who I am. In light of my experience as a professional athlete, I want to take this moment to encourage others who play sports professionally or otherwise to have confidence that sport will welcome them wholeheartedly. June is Pride Month, and I'm proud to be playing for Pride and playing as an out gay man. And I think that these words were so important, given the other news that we had this week reported very eloquently by our own Lindsay Gibbs, the huge disparities that have been found in in LGBTQ teens out being outside of school sports. This recent study that Lindsay wrote about this week shows that only 24% of LGBTQ youth say they play a school sport compared to 68% of the national sample for cisgendered or non-LGBTQ youth, which is a staggering disparity. Uh, Linz, I, I was really taken and captivated by this reporting. Do you want to speak a little bit on it? Yeah, absolutely. I was, I was blown away by it too. You know, the people uh, who at the Human Rights Council who work on this, and you know, who are more well vetted in the issues, they weren't as surprised by this sample difference as I was. But I just the 24% compared to 68% is just horrifying. And furthermore, only 14% of transgender boys and non-binary youth and 12% of transgender girls participate in school sports. This is despite the fact that this study also found hard numbers to prove that participating in sports actually makes LGBTQ youth have a less, they're less likely to be depressed, they're less likely to feel hopeless, and they're more likely to feel like part of the community. So we know that, you know, the LGBTQ youth face many challenges. Sports is a way to really help them and help them be part of the community and help them feel part. And yet they still seem so inaccessible to LGBTQ youth. And there's, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, coaches, most coaches don't think that there are any LGBTQ youth on their teams. It's because 80% of LGBTQ youth aren't out to their coaches, according to the survey. So most coaches likely have LGBTQ youth on their teams, but just don't know it. And, you know, you know, when you go to other things such as the locker room culture, one thing that really gets me is how it's always been portrayed as both gay, lesbian, and bisexual people in locker rooms are threatening because they might be attracted to you while you're changing and, oh, that's not safe. And also, of course, the transgender people are in the locker rooms as some sort of scheme, you know, evil scheme, when in reality, it's the LGBTQ youth who are feeling unsafe in locker rooms. They're the ones who aren't feeling welcomed in locker rooms. They're the ones who we need to make locker rooms a more welcoming space for, because just locker rooms in itself, I believe, are one of the biggest barriers to getting more participation in sports. So yeah, there were reasons to celebrate this, uh, you know, at the, here at the end of Pride Month, in the WNBA, there was an exciting moment where Dewana Bonner and Candace Dupree, who are married mm -hmm. and have twins, Dupree gave birth to their twins. They actually played each other as opponents for the first time on Friday night. And, you know, that was really cool to see wives facing off. Um, you also well, have. That's the best thing about the WNBA is that you get <laughs> not only wives facing off, you have ex-wives <laughs> facing off. Like, I don't understand why nobody would want more. Like, this is, this gives you great storylines. <laughs> Like, yeah, if I get Max, I feel like people this. think when we when I focus on this stuff that like you know oh well I think people are people get afraid to bring it up because they don't want people to just focus on that. But look, I yeah. love gossip. <laughs> exactly. I, I love gossip mm -hmm. in men's Messy sports. I love gossip <laughs> in all sports. So I would like to talk about it. But I you know I'd also like to break down the game. But if there are wives or ex wives playing against each other, yes, please. <laughs> Um, so anyways, mm -hmm. and you also had this week, Megan Rapino and Sue Bird on the ESPN body issue, uh, yeah. which was one of the best things I've ever seen in my life. So there were these, you know, three really, to me, big moments here at Vena Pride Month. And yet this study came out that just showed there's so much more work to be done. Brenda? Yes. Yeah. I, so far, I mean, I've been more wrapped up with the World Cup this month and you know, all the fears about Russia and and what could happen given the draconian 
laws against informing children about homosexuality in Russia and a series of problems with the with the Putin administration. And it's interesting because, you know, I mean, it, it's OK. I hate to like say this because I'm really negative, but it hasn't been as bad as we thought. <laughs> and, yeah. And I have to celebrate that the P chant went away after the play, the first Mexico game and the players pled with the fans like, oh, stop, please, please, please stop. You're hexing us entirely. And that was really great to see. And so I guess, you know, for this month, the month that I thought would be way worse, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit heartened to see that, you know, and that has to do with the work of organizations like FAIR and tons of grassroots organizations. It's not like this has just happened. Right. Amira? Yeah, in honor of Pride Month and wrapping it up, I, I thought that I might bring a little bit, uh, a little small piece of LGBTQ sports history, particularly to talk about exactly what you just said, Lindsay, how sports can be a really important pivotal space um, and why inclusion is such an important thing, inclusion and representation. In 1977, in the Pioneer Valley, where I grew up in Western Massachusetts, there is a really infamous uh, lesbian softball league. It began in 1977, and it was specifically aimed at providing lesbian and their friends a feminist sports place where they could come together safely, have social activity, share kind of political ideas, and, and also have fun. And this was a philosophy of inclusion with any woman, regardless of ability and race. There was women who were disabled who played, women of all kinds of races and ethnicities, as much diversity as you can pack into the Pioneer Valley. And essentially, this grew. It started out just with six teams with names like the Hot Flashes <laughs> or the No Mooks of the North. <laughs> and... Uh, and it grew up to, during the height of the league, to 16 teams. And in 1991, it was officially renamed the Mary Vasquez Women's Softball League to recognize Mary Vasquez, who had uh, such a uh, important organizing kind of effect and skills. And it's something that I hold very near and dear to my heart because as I was growing up, it's not a secret my adoptive parents are lesbians from Massachusetts and their friends played in this league. And I grew up going to these softball matches that were still very active well into the 90s when I was a child. And the community that was there was something that still stays with me and just a place where people can congregate and find support. And it was a place for organizing and activism. It was a place where uh, you could come and play sports and, and feel included, but also leave with a sense of camaraderie that led them to other forms of activism and other forms of protest and just defining themselves and saying, we have a space, we demand a voice and we're together in this. And it was just something that popped into my mind as we were wrapping up Pride Month discussion and also thinking about what it means to live in the times that we do. And I think we can take a, a, a lot of instructions from lesbian softball teams from the 70s <laughs> that showed us the importance of sports and how sports can be a communal space that validates your identity and helps you organize with those around you is the best part of sports in many ways. And so that is your quick history, your Pride Month history. Uh, you can check it out. There's a great documentary about it called In League With Us, the Mary Vasquez Women's Softball League, if you want more information of it about it. And yeah. So now that we're out of the group stages, I wanted to sit down with an expert on Mexican football or soccer, if some of our listeners feel more comfortable with that. Jessica Lopez, the public relations manager for Minnesota United, and who's also done work on Mexican football with ESPN. Welcome to Burn It All Down. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm psyched to be here. Always a good time talking about Mexican soccer, so I appreciate you guys inviting me on. Well, we're pretty excited right now about Mexican soccer, too. Do you want to tell us, were you surprised about their game with Germany, or is it just that we don't 
get enough intel on Mexican soccer that that we wouldn't have been surprised if we would have had more info? You know, so I originally predicted this as at least a draw. I thought Mexico was going to get something out of that game. But to go into a game like that against a team that you have never beaten in a World Cup, I think there's always an element of surprise, right? For me, I was surprised at the way that Mexico just went out and attacked that game from the start. It looked like within that first 45 minutes, they had already kind of broken Germany, you know? And then Chucky scores his goal. And then after that, you know, just going counting by five minute, 10 minute increments until this game is finally over. You're on the edge of your seat, just screaming every single time we're in the box. So I don't think that I was necessarily surprised. I thought that Mexico could get something out of that game with a coach like Juan Carlos Osorio, who is just absolutely obsessed with planning his tactics. You know, he said something after the, after the match um, that he had been preparing for that specific game for six months. So you think about it like that and all of his kind of tinkering and the different rotaciones that people talk about and stuff like that seem to all kind of connect into that one amazing 90-minute period, you know. So what happened to them? What happened to them game three? (laughs) Game three, for me, it had a little Copa Centenario feel to it. Just Mm -hmm. In dropping back down to earth after these first two games where it really felt like Mexico was playing with that love of winning, which is, you know, they just had this free feel about how they were playing with so much confidence after Germany. And then they approached that game. It was the first time in 51 games in charge that Osorio had decided not to do his infamous rotaciones, right? So this was the first time that he had done two consecutive the same lineup back to back, right? So explain to listeners that don't know, you know, Sardio is Colum- a Colombian coach who's really well known in Latin America. So explain what that is, maybe for our listeners that don't know, what are his rotaciones? So the rotaciones are essentially just, you know, this is a coach who, rather than sticking with the same starting 11 all the time, he is constantly rotating guys in and out. So you look at each player on this team and every guy knows that they have a role that they could be needed. And yeah, essentially just that he loves to tinker. He gets a lot of, what's the right word for this? You know, just like a lot of backlash from folks in the media or anyone who disagrees with his rotaciones. But he's just a guy who never really settles, is always thinking about the next step a guy who I would definitely not want to play chess against or something like that because he (laughs) is just like, seems like a mastermind to me. I've always loved the way that he approaches games, but for the Sweden game, he said after the, he said something after the match that he was, he felt very sad. And this was the first time that against a team that is so direct and physical and strong, like Sweden, this was the first time that he hadn't approached it with his sort of three center back, one defensive mid lineup that he had used in the past. So it's one of those things where I think that Mexico did approach the game trying to win, but it just didn't work out, whether it's on Osorio not switching things up or the players not being 100%. There were a few guys, Edson Alvarez is super young, right back, the captain, Andres Guardado, just some guys who didn't have their best game. You had Hector Moreno getting a yellow card, so now he's suspended for the next match. You know, Mexico tried to play. They just tried to play through the middle of a team that was so compact. It felt like it felt like they had two or three more guys on the pitch than Mexico at any given moment. You know, just one of those games. What do you think it means right now in this political moment for Latinos in the U.S., Mexican-Americans, to see Mexico represented on this world stage in this really positive way oh man that's a tough one it I feel like it's tough because it is just so massive what what they were able to pull off against Germany and just kind of the mindset that this this group of players first and foremost I think it's just a wonderful super lovable group and to see them giving their all on this stage producing um, incredible moments like that you have guys like Chicharito who are saying, you know, I mean, imaginémonos cosas chingonas. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> just saying that we're, we're really trying to believe amazing in order to not say it in a more vulgar way, just incredible things are possible here. And not only that, contrasting that with the fact that there have also been some positive changes in the sense that the goalkeeper chant has stopped. I think that's a huge positive on the world stage to show that this fan base and this group of players, the federation, the league can all come together and say, you know what, it's time for, for this to finally be done, which should have happened a long time ago, in my opinion. But, but no, it's, it's huge. It, it, it brings me to tears most of the time after any of their games, a win or a loss. It's just so much emotion, such a time to just be able to, to share and, and appreciate. And, and that, that's the kind of stuff that I love about the World Cup, you know. Yeah, I it just it it felt like and and Chicharito, as far as I know, actually was one of the leaders of the campaign against the homophobic chant, the P chant. Yeah, you know, you saw once the World Cup kind of kicked off, and Mexico had that ten thousand dollar fine after Germany because there was a, there were chants um, during that game. You saw after that a lot of the players, Cheech included, obviously. You saw other guys like Marco Fabian and and a number of others posting on social media and being like, you know, we, we got to do this. We really got to just urging the fans to, to change that, which is special to just see all, all of those folks come together. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, what do you think for the fans in the U S versus do they, do they have a different cultural, different football culture from Mexican fans in Mexico or do they have a kind of, or is there a sort of pan, Mexican football culture? To me, I kind of, as somebody who's worked on the sport and particularly with this team in Spanish and in English, I think that the passion and love for the team is cross-cultural, cross-border. You know, fans in the U.S. share that same emotion and just die-hard love of this squad as folks in Mexico. And I think you see that more and more with the national team improving their efforts to reach that audience. So, so yeah, I th- I, with with their English language channels, um, but I do think it is something that that crosses borders, and and all of us are really just sharing that same that same passion, whether it's folks in the Los Angeles area or in Ciudad de Mexico or wherever else they may be. What do you think Mexico's got to do against Brazil? Oof, <laughs> it's not easy. It's not easy. So, if you can beat Germany for the first time in a World Cup. There's no reason why you can't beat Brazil, in my opinion. I think it's Mexico not trying to change too much, approaching the game with more confidence, the confidence that they took into the game against Germany. So so I, I, it's a tough one because I feel like in the World Cup, you can say as much as you want in terms of tactical preview, how's, how's the coach going to switch things up. You know, you have Hector Moreno, who is now suspended, which is a big change. So somebody's going to have to come into Mexico's defense whether that's pushing Layun back from the right wing, bringing in Hugo Ayala. There's a number of different changes that Osorio could make. But by and large, I think it's kind of trying to do some of, some of what they did against Germany in the sense that they got those wide guys like Chucky and Carlos Vela in when the German outside wing backs and stuff pushed up more and more, which I think is similar to what Brazil can do. But, you know... It's uh, it's the game before the Quinto Partido, which is always a challenge for Mexico over the years. So you're going to need a little bit of luck in addition to that and just kind of going with that that love of winning and this feeling that here's a group of players who, at least from a distance, genuinely seem like they're all in. They support the coach. They are bought into his system. They're bought into each other. So for all those reasons, I think it's an amazing team to watch. And I think that I, I genuinely feel confident that they can get something out of that game. I have them advancing, but I wouldn't be able to bet against them. So, <laughs> Can you explain to our listeners what's the Quinto Partido? Sure. Yeah, so I mean, over, I'm trying to think of, it's been since like 1990. Pretty much for, for my whole lifetime, Mexico has not been able to make it to that quinto partido, the fifth game in the World Cup, past the round of 16. So you look back to, there's, there are always these events that happen every single World Cup that kind of just some stroke of misfortune and Mexico seems like they're on the verge of making it. 
and something happens. In 2002 is where the Dos Acero kind of originated when they met the U.S. and they lost 2-0. After that, there was a crazy goal against Argentina for a winner in like the 90-something minute in 2006. 2010, they lost again. 2014, which I think I think it's actually a year to the date that we're having this conversation when, or four years to the date, I'm sorry, that we're having this conversation when um, No Era Penal happened, when when Mexico went up against the Netherlands in the round of 16 and, and yep. uh, Robin went down in the box and they called it. I wish we had the bar then. I wish we had the bar then. Man, you know what? If we had VAR then, it's a good point. But um, but yeah, so so the Quinto Partido is really just this this curse that seems like it's been around the national team for for decades at this point. Um, with Mexico trying to make it past the round of sixteen and always having to go up against the Netherlands, the Argentinas, which you know is inevitable once you get into the knockout rounds. But but it's a curse that I'm hoping they can they can break this time around. <laughs> Well, at Burn It All Down, we wish you and Mexico the very best of luck this weekend, Jessica. And thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me again. I really appreciate it. All right, everyone. It is burn pile time. I'm going to kick us off, which is with what is now a weekly edition of What's Burning at Michigan State University. This week, we have... The fact that Michigan State University, and in particular, our friend, interim president, John Engler, moved Robert Kent from his role as assistant general counsel into the job of interim VP of the Office of Civil Rights and Title IX Education and Compliance. You might be thinking, what is the big deal there, Lindsay? Well, to put it in plain terms, this means that the man who defended Michigan State against all of these sexual assault lawsuits is now going to be heading the office that handles sexual assault complaints. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Jesus. Just let that set you can't in. Make this up. No. Well done, Michigan State. Burn. Yeah, it. burn. Burn. <laughs> I have a shameful alumni burn there. Brenda. I am an, yeah, I'm an alum. So I, that's an extra burn on Michigan State. Okay. It burns me too. I want to burn the racist actions that took place on the Mexican show Un Nuevo mm-hmm. Dia, which is also Mexican-American, more than just Mexican, on Telemundo. And the two hosts, James Tehan and Janice Bencosme, made a racist eye gesture in celebration of the South Korean 2-0 victory over Germany. Mm -hmm. They've been suspended, and it's unclear what Telemundo will do with them. But it's like, are you kidding me? Really? Are you four? In 1940? I mean, what is like, when this seems so anachronistic, I mean, obviously racist, horrible. And then on top of it, it's unbelievable to me that that's even in the repertoire of racism anymore. Like it just seems so like we've done so much work to to try to bring attention to why this is so awful and hurtful. And there they are on a morning show doing it when they're supposedly grateful to South Korea because if South Korea didn't beat Germany in that way, then Mexico wouldn't go on. And they did it in Mexican national jerseys. And it's oh. so awful to see. It's so awful to see. Of course, there's a very large Asian community in Mexico that's frequently erased on top of it. Mm-hmm. So it's not only, you know, racist externally, it's racist internally. And it, and and it erases all the great feelings yeah. that I was having of the of the Mexican-Korean solidarity that we were talking about. And if you want more of that discussion, check out our hot take. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so anyway, I, I want to burn that, especially in this week where Mexicans are being caricatured by other like very racist forms of 
you know, whether it's in the government or on the streets, you know, and our president that has used ra- racist, violent language to describe immigrants, to to defame Mexicans. So then to see this on Telemundo is like, this is the same system that is demonizing Mexicans. And then to see it in Mexico within Mexican national Jersey was so disappointing to me. And so not what my Mexican family community is like. So I want to burn those, those, the gestures of those hosts. Burn. Burn. Amira. Yeah. I want to burn the reactions to the correction tour of, okay, let me back up. So Messi scored a goal as he's ought to do. And one of the things that that set off was people declaring him the first player to have ever scored a World Cup goal as a teenager in his 20s and his 30s. Many people took Mm -hmm. to Twitter to note that he was not the first player, rather the first man to do it. Julie Foudy, for instance, retweeted a tweet and said, "Um, Mia Hamm would like a word. Uh, Mia Hamm completed this feat, as well as Sun Wen of China, who completed it in actually the same World Cups as Mia Hamm did. And so this simple correction by saying, oh, FYI, you know, he wasn't the first. He was just the first man. Um, You're just like factually inaccurate. But like that doesn't detract from the celebration. Like it's still an amazing feat. The reaction to people simply saying he wasn't the first was, is what I want to burn. Because the pearl clutching, the like oh, yeah. ridiculous like way that people get so riled up it reminded me of during march madness when this happened with umbc being like this they're the first number one seed or 16 seed to knock off a number one seed and people just it was like oh actually harvard did it on the women's side like two decades ago um and simply saying hey actually women exist causes people so much derangement they're so vexed because to point this out and they're like who cares and it's like no like women actually exist language matters and that's why i want to burn it down because i think that i mean we try on the show to um make sure we're saying men's world cup and that we don't always get that right we don't say that because i think all of us have been conditioned to use language that reifies men as the kind of norm white as the norm and so we put qualifiers on everything that is outside that whether it's women or minority groups or whatever and that's just that's the systems that we're a part of we're we're part and parcel of that and so it actually takes some work to undo that and takes some work to say no actually there is another world cup that we've conditioned to be called the women's world cup but what would happen right if we just said this is the men's world cup that's the women's world cup and and, you know this is what's going on and i think that people who want to like clutch their pearls and get so vexed over language and say oh you have agendas or why does it matter well it fucking matters it does because these are the ways that we unconsciously or kind of quietly reinforce systems of oppression and power and so even though it seems insignificant, being able to say, actually, Leo Messi is, did an amazing achievement. He's one of three players who've done this, and he's the first male player to do this. It's simple as fuck, and it's accurate, and it, it does a long way to, you know, not ensuring the erasure of women athletes. So anyways, I'm burning those stupid reactions down. Burn. Burn. All right, it's time to lift up, speaking of, some badass women of the week. First of all, I want to give a shout out to Amelie Moresmo, who I meant to shout out last week. She became the head coach of France's Davis Cup team earlier this month, which notably is the men's team competition in tennis. So way to go, Amelie. I also wanted to Love being able to shout out Roxanne Gay here in the sports space, but she wrote a phenomenally powerful essay on bodies and fatness and exercise and trauma to open up the ESPN body issue. And I just, it just really moved me. So thank you, Roxanne. 
Another great moment for women coaching men's sports, Becky Hammond will now be on the front row of the Spurs coaching bench, which means she will be courtside at all the games next year. She got a promotion, so I'm just so excited to be able to see her sitting right there next to the players. Uh, she's been, you know, in the row in row right behind them, but there's something about that front row. The visibility is super important. Also, Brianna Stewart, who not only is, I believe, in the power rankings that I did this week over in Yard Barker, is the front runner for the MVP in the WNBA, but she also recently did a wonderful feature on ESPN where she opened up even more about the sexual abuse she experienced as a child. And it all came full circle when she posed for the ESPN body issue, which she said was part of kind of taking back her narrative and ownership of her body. So way to go, Stewie. LPGA star Stacey Lewis announced her pregnancy this week, and she convinced her sponsor to continue to fulfill her contract regardless of if she plays or not, which is a huge moment for maternity rights in golf. Love that so much. Also want to give a shout out to uh, Kate, the woman known as Kate, who is the woman who came forward with her story about Jameis Winston's abuse last November in BuzzFeed and is the reason that he even got three games. And she released a statement this week saying how important it is to believe women, because perhaps if women had been believed before her, that we wouldn't even be here today. So thank you, Kate, for your strength. And drum roll, please. Yes. All right. I know we've already mentioned them, but Megan Rapino and Sue Bird, the first Woo-hoo. lesbian couple, same-sex couple to be on the cover of the ESPN body issue. They are so hot. <laughs> They're so beautiful. beautiful. And it was just such a inspiring moment. They are the power couple right now. And yeah, thank you, Megan and Sue. Okay, it's been a tough week. I know that. Can we think of anything good that's going on, Amira? Yeah, so World Cup and Wimbledon are yes. taking this week by storm, which gives me my summer sports mornings, which I love so much. I drop the kids off at camp and I sit down to write and I have one eye trained on my computer and the other on a TV. And it just is so wonderful to wake up to Wimbledon and and then also because of uh, the World Cup times this summer, getting to wake up for those uh, 10 a.m. games as well. So I'm super excited about that. Um, and the other thing that's good, sometimes when you, I need to escape and Netflix just doesn't do it, I go to my trusty and true books, which means that I am rereading Harry Potter for the zillionth time because uh-uh. how could you not? It's brilliant. So I'm currently on book four and just marveling at this world and falling in love with it all over again. I I'm reading the copies of the books that I read when I was 12 and I've read them, you know, countless times since then. And and it's just fun. I'm driving a lot this summer. And so just putting them on the audiobook is cool. So shout out to Harry Potter and Wimbledon in the World Cup. You're what's good in my life right now. I love it. Brenda? Yeah. Well, I should preface this. It's going to sound arrogant if I don't preface it by explaining that I'm the worst sports predictor ever. Like nothing that I say usually comes to fruition, except sometimes I have an eye for talent in South American strikers, but not always. So I went to a World Cup Congress in Paris, talked about it on the show, where I engaged in a heated argument over the value of Eddie Cavani, who is the Uruguayan striker, right? Number nine for for Uruguay. And huge argument, huge argument. And I would just like to say that yesterday in Uruguay's 2-1 victory over Portugal, in which he scored twice, I am vindicated. I got something right. In your face, delegates at the World Cup Paris And you don't even need to qualify that. (laughs) You are a genius. It is so in your face because because I was right. And Cavani is brilliant and I'm so happy for him. So that's what's good is that I feel like, hey, all these years of studying football, men's and women's, I maybe I know something finally. 
You know it's... a million things. Don't yeah. downgrade your brilliance. <laughs> Honestly, the modesty is annoying, so I don't like it. Um, uh, <laughs> all right, for me, I am going to have to say Diana Taurasi is what's good. I got to see her play live last night and interview her. So that was that was great. She was in town, Mercury versus Mystics. And it also gave me a chance to relive my – I mean – there are so many good Diana Taurasi stories, but this one comes from Shatori Walker Kimbrough, who is in her second year with the Mystics. And I remembered uh, her telling me something last year about an interaction she had with Taurasi, but I couldn't remember exactly what it was. So I asked her to re- repeat it for me. And so this was her rookie season. And I think I'd asked her something along the lines of, you know, as a rookie, what's it like facing Diana Taurasi? And Walker Kimbrough told me, uh, well, she sat on my shoe. <laughs> I was like, wait, what do you mean? <laughs> Apparently, they got like, you know, intertwined uh, in a little scuffle in the middle of a play. Shatori's shoe came off. And in the middle of the play, Diana Taurasi just sat on, like, just, just was like, oh, I'm just going to sit on her shoe so she can't get my get to her shoe anymore. And so Walker Kimber was there, a rookie, in the middle of a play being like, I should probably run for this rebound, but I don't have a shoe because Diana Taurasi is sitting on it. <laughs> And I just love that story so much. Apparently, Tarasi didn't even hand the shoe back to her in the play. She just threw it to the sidelines in true, you know, villain fashion. So, uh, you know, it's not easy to go up against the goat. But, you know, that's just what happens. Sometimes the goat takes her shoe. All right. Thank you all so much for listening to us this episode. I hope that, you know, we all find strength together to move forward in these really tough times. And at times, just it's important to just allow ourselves to feel everything and to go into the fetal position and to rebuild our strength for the fight ahead. Thanks for spending your time with Burn It All Down. As I mentioned at the top of the show, we really appreciate our Patreon supporters and are really trying to unlock our next level of uh, donations, which we need a hundred more, hundred dollars of monthly pe- pledges to go to reach our goal of $1,200 a month. So please, any bet you can contribute would really help us so much as we continue to grow the podcast. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We are on uh, the website, burnitalldownpod.com. And, of course, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, SoundCloud, all of those you can go to. You can rate us and review us. We are up to 300 reviews, and I'm so excited. Thank you all so much. And uh, yeah, we will uh, see you here same time uh, next week. Love to you all. And I saw-